Well, it is, uh, as I said earlier, so great to worship with you. Uh, I hope that you have had a good week and that you've seen just the tangible expressions of God's grace in your life. If you have a a, uh, word with you, a a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Thank you, David. Um, And if you do not have one with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, And and if you don't um, have one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you as a gift. But we're uh, in a series uh, through Romans where uh, what we're seeking to do, uh, which is, is to do two messages per chapter, um, 16 chapters. And so this week or, or this year, uh, we will be in Romans for 32 weeks. And we are in the second message on chapter 4, which is verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And, um, uh, and so I hope that this has been encouraging to you. As we get ready to read this, um, I would just ask that, uh, that we first pray. And let's ask the Lord to be our teacher uh, and to uh, truly uh, make sure that our uh, mind and our heart is fully awake. Uh, and so if you would, uh, let's just bow and let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to you, Lord, believing, Lord, that this is your word. And we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and a heart to understand. Would you give us ears to hear this morning? Lord, there's a lot of things in our mind and our heart, and you have spoken to us clearly in your word. And so we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to understand, to believe it, and to apply it to our life. We are grateful for your word, and yet we realize, Lord, that our own mind is so fallen, our heart is so fallen, Lord, that Even in reading this, unless you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, unveil it to our hearts, Lord, that we will not be able to do these things that we need. And so we come to you totally dependent upon you, asking that you would be our teacher and our guide this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our, uh, um, this this, uh, whole chapter um, is really one part of a two-chapter uh, word picture that Paul is seeking to use to really illustrate one verse. And that verse that, that is uh, central to what he's really talking about is in chapter 3 and verse 28. What it says there is this. It says, For we hold that one is justified, meaning is made right by God and then declared righteous by God. Okay? He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And what he does through chapter uh, 3 and 4 is he highlights the central character in the history of Israel. Right? And he was their forefather. And he says, now look, if this was true of Abraham, then it also is to be true of you. What's interesting, though, is the law is something that we typically, throughout history, mankind has misused, okay? And so what Paul's doing in this book is he's saying, look, we're not justified by the works of the law. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he seeks to show us how do we misuse the law. And if, if I could say it sort of like this, okay? In your mind, uh, just think of a railroad track, okay? And, and, and on that track, there's, there's the two iron beams, of course, that, that run down. But then in between each of these, there's a series of railroad ties, okay? Um, individual stakes of lumber, big pieces of wood, on which these, these uh, iron um, uh, rails rest. 
And if you think about the law, okay, each, each individual commandment is sort of like those railroad ties. And so they line the way. And on those ties, on those individual commandments, there is two iron beams. And these iron beams, they provide no strength for any car to run on. There's no engine in them. They only show the way. And so when you stand on a railroad and you look down, there's a direction that it's running. And this was God's intent with the law. The only engine that can move is the grace of God. And so if you can think of on this railroad, there's a train. And each one of our lives is an individual car on that train. But there's no engine. We just sit there. If the railroad track is easy, we may get a little momentum simply because it's downhill. But sure enough, it's going to go back up a hill again. And so eventually we're going to go and finally we're going to rest in the middle. And we have no engine in and of ourselves. There's no engine in the law. And so God's grace is the engine. And the coupling that connects each of our lives to the grace of God is faith. And this is how God designed the law to work. Is that you and I would have faith in God and in his grace. And his law would simply be a tutor. It would show us the direction. It would show us his holiness. It would show us his compassion. It would show us these things in commanding us to do certain things. But mankind, we, we, we all have this thing that's called fallenness or flesh. And what's interesting about our fallenness is that we resist grace. We want to earn it. We want to contribute to how far we've gone and how far we've moved. And so mankind has really done something that's absolutely unthinkable. And that is what we've done is we've gone to this railroad track and we've looked at it and we go, wow, it's really beautiful. But you know what? I think I, think I can use it in a different way. And we rip it out of the dirt. We lean it up and we prop it against heaven's footstool. And we make a ladder out of it. And each one of these railroad ties now becomes something that we're to do as we're climbing up this ladder in order to earn our way to heaven. But the Bible through and through, in fact, Romans chapter 1 through, through 3, the whole thing has been to say, look, you're not a good climber. And neither am I. We are all sinful. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so knowing that we could not climb this ladder of the law to heaven and merit God's approval and his acceptance of us, God sent his son down the ladder. And what's amazing is how he did this. He came down to rescue us. And how he did it actually starts all the way back to where we messed the whole thing up in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, right in the middle after sin comes into the world, God is laying out his curse. God lays out a promise right in the middle of the curse. And it's in chapter 3, verse 15. And this is what it says. It says, it says this. It says that the, that the seed of a woman, and he's speaking to the serpent. He says, you will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. In other words, we're looking for one that will be born of a woman. A man that will be born of a woman that will eventually make all things new again. That will redeem us and rescue us and bring us back into a right relationship with God. Well, fast forward a few chapters. There's a man, his name is Abram. 
And Abram, we're told in Joshua, is worshiping idols. So he's not meriting God's approval or his acceptance. God looks down upon Abram and he says, you know what? I'm going to do something with you. And he makes him a promise. And it was a multi-tier promise. He comes and he says, look, he says, I'm going to do you good. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you land. And through you, through one of your own seed, from your genealogy, I'm going to bring the one that's going to rescue everybody in the world. And what we're told is in chapter 4, verse 3, which is our verse that we're seeking to memorize as a church family, is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And sure enough, being faithful to his promise, God Almighty did just that. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, a physical descendant of Abraham to be our savior. And Jesus lived a righteous life and he died on a cross for our sin. He was buried in a grave and he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he extended a promise to those of us who would look to him in faith, saying that if you would believe in me, I will count you as righteous and include you among Abraham's descendants to fulfill my promise even to him. Now, with that context, let's read. Look at verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is not a compliment, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Saren's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so what you find in this text, among many other things, are three practical benefits of what we receive, what God has made available to those who will trust in Christ. 
Very simple. Number one is this, is trusting Christ prepares us for eternity. Prepares us for eternity. And this morning, even though it's something that we don't like to think about, it's not something that we delight to think about, I want to urge you this morning to think about eternity. Verses 13, 14, and 15 beckon you to think about eternity. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So let's start at the end and move back. Verse 15, he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. In every sector of our life, we find that we are constantly adding laws. Have you ever noticed this? Like the state, every year we add a few laws. The nation adds a few laws. Even when you get to the game of football, right? We are adding rules as we are uh, learning more. Recently, over the last several years, there's been all kinds of study about head injuries and what repeated head injuries to a football player does, in particular uh, when he grows a little bit older. Um, and so at one time, people were allowed and encouraged. When I was playing football, they taught me to lead with my forehead. They said, find the target. Put your forehead right on it. And typically what they taught is you want to aim right here. Right in between the chest and the face guard. Because that's the big part, right? There's a chance even if you miss that, you're going to get something. And, but what's happening is these people, they, they're, they're, they're getting bigger and faster and stronger. And so they keep running into each other and their heads keep. And so what do they do? Well, they made a new law. Right? They made a new rule. Now, before the rule, there was no transgression for leading with your helmet, but now there is. And this is what he's saying in terms of faith here. He says, look, before the Old Testament law came, I mean, if you think about it, Abraham in the Bible, when Abraham and all, came, he, it was 430 years before God gave a written law to Moses. And so for 430 years, there would have been all kinds of behaviors and attitudes that even though God had written the law on our heart and there was a sense of, I don't think that's right. There was no specific commandment that people were violating. And so, for example, a child or a teenager might disrespect his mom or his dad. They might feel a little trouble about it. Like, eh, it probably doesn't, it doesn't feel right. I'm not sure exactly why. But until God laid down a law in Exodus and he says, honor your father and your mother. You see, that disrespect at that point violated a specific command and that leads to the wrath of God. And that's why he says in verse 15, for the law brings wrath for where there is no law, there's no transgression. So for 430 years, people were doing things. And no one was throwing a flag on the ground saying, that's ah, a violation. And so once the law came, all of a sudden now there's flags everywhere. The whole, the whole earth is full of flags. That's a violation. And that's a violation. And that's a violation. And this brings wrath. You see, the reality for all of us is that we're all sinners. So without a remedy, you and I have an inheritance 
of wrath awaiting us. This is what he's saying. He said, this law, it brings wrath. And God knew that we needed a remedy, and that's exactly what he did. He promised a remedy, and he delivered one in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was even walking on the on the earth, he's speaking to some unbelieving Jews. They're, they're, they're frustrated at him. They do not believe in who he says that he is. And he speaks these words to them. In John 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And what he's saying there is this. Abraham, your father, had faith in the promised one who happens to be me. In other words, you say, well, how was Abraham saved? He was saved by faith in God's promise. And part of that promise was that there would be one that would come to die and to rise from the dead and save him from his own sin. You see, today, if you and I will place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're told that we too will be forgiven, that we will be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we will be then declared righteous. And not only so, but we'll also join Abraham as an heir of the world, a co-heir with Christ. We're told in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise God's promise you see there are only two possible futures for everyone in this room we can place our faith in Jesus Christ and inherit heaven or we can chase the law and try to turn it into a ladder and try to scale that to heaven and inherit wrath Either way, I would plead with you this morning to consider eternity. You see, some people may listen to me right now and they say, you know, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that because I don't believe in heaven or hell. I think we just die and I think we're just buried and the whole thing is over. Some people believe that. Maybe in this room this morning. There may be other people who've contemplated and thought, you know, just the love of God. I can envision heaven, but I just cannot envision hell. I think everyone's going to heaven. To be totally honest with you, even though both of those two perspectives do not come from the scriptures and I could not therefore agree with them, I at least give those people credit for thinking about eternity. Because the great majority of people today will respond to this kind of teaching with utter apathy, saying something like, all right, Brian, so you say that we have two possible futures. You know what I think? I think tomorrow I'm going to eat Cheetos while I watch Seinfeld reruns. That's what I think. They could care less. They're filling their entire life with trivialities. They're literally drunk on trivial things. They're not sober-minded about anything. And what he's saying here is one thing is, listen, we need to awake. Because eternity compares to this world like the Grand Canyon compares to the dimple of a golf ball. It is so long and so deep that so and long and deep are words that buckle under the pressure of trying to explain eternity. See, be sober-minded. For Jesus Christ is consequential. 
And being ready to meet him is the main business of life. And if we will trust in Jesus, he will make us ready for those days. Isn't that good news? So good. The second thing is this. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that trusting Christ provides us with spiritual certainty. Spiritual certainty. I, I, I love what he says here. He goes, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, God, who gave his son to rescue us, deeply wants us to know with certainty that we have been rescued. The only reason that there is spiritual certainty that is referenced and promised within the scriptures is because God is kind. Him telling us that there is such thing as spiritual certainty does not help him. He does not have a better day when we feel that way or when we don't. But out of love, just like many of you are parents and you want your children to rest in your love and to know that they are a part of your family and nothing they could do could separate them from your family. So God also wants those of us who have been rescued by Jesus to know we've been rescued by Jesus and to be able to rest in that. But it's interesting, the only believers who live with certainty under this canopy of fallenness where there's suffering and there's sickness and there's death and there's sin and there's fallenness and mistakes and failures... The only believers that really rest with certainty, spiritual certainty under this canopy, are those who see that God has accepted them on the basis of grace and not merit. And I want to show you why. Paul says that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed guaranteed spiritual certainty guaranteed how grace faith it must come from faith and i want to show you why though see if salvation were dependent upon our works if salvation were dependent upon you scaling a certain height on that law ladder well, then you and I would always be perpetually wondering if we've done enough. You see, like a carrot that's placed out as incentive in front of a horse, spiritual certainty would be so elusive. It would always be just one more good step away, one more righteousness, one more trip to church, one more prayer, one more whatever. One more law, one more. And it would always be just out in front of us. And that never causes spiritual certainty. And so God made grace the foundation of his guarantee. And so we've got to ask, well, what is grace? Grace is God's sovereign pleasure. Sovereign pleasure. His authority to do what he wants. Okay? Grace is his authority 
to do what he wants. It's his sovereign pleasure to accept a sinner. To pour out his righteousness upon a sinner. To give life to people who are spiritually dead. To call into existence things that do not exist. This is his pleasure. You can't argue with it because he's God. It's his grace that chooses to love us. It's his grace that chooses to accept us. See, listen to me. God did not accept you because he thought you were serviceable. He accepted you because by his grace, he loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to rest in his love. And what is the only human response that accords with grace? It's faith. It's faith. I want to show you a little picture to help you sort of grasp this, okay? Now, I have no idea who these people are, right? But they really look happy, don't they? Right? Here he is. He's on his knee. He has a ring. He's proposing. Now, when you look at this picture, this, this, this represents so many things. This represents God. It represents Christ in the church. It represents grace. It's about to represent a lot of forgiveness and, and kindness and mercy and forbearance and all kinds of things like this. But people can look at this and there can be an appropriate response and there can be an inappropriate response to this kind of a picture. An appropriate response might be Thanksgiving or celebration or a smile or, oh, how good is that? That's so wonderful. They're about to enter. But there can also be inappropriate responses to this. There can be people who resent that they have not had this in their own life. And so they might resent this in others. There may be someone who has had that. They've gone through trouble and now they look at other people who are about to engage in marriage and go, well, what a bunch of idiots. I can't believe those people would actually, in the face of all the marital failure in the world today, people would still be doing this. What a bunch of idiots. You see, but those who understand the nobility, the, 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 the extreme value of marriage that God created it to be a skit to show the world the love that Christ has for the church and how the church responds in yielding and joy to Christ himself. You see, there's an appropriate way to respond to these pictures and there's an inappropriate way. And what I'm saying is this, there's an appropriate way to respond to the sovereign pleasure of God to accept you because he loves you and there's an inappropriate way. The appropriate way is faith, and that's the only one. Faith is the only response we can provide that accords with grace. But it is possible. It is possible to think of grace and have such a skewed picture of what grace is that we can actually follow that up by saying, you know what, I really want to work to earn that. And that would be an inappropriate response that would not accord with grace. You see, it's so fascinating. Our flesh wants so badly to contribute to our own salvation 
that even those of us who say, okay, it's faith, it is faith alone. Faith is the only human response. It's the only thing that I can do to respond to grace in a healthy way. I am going to rejoice that I had faith. And it's amazing that we'll even take credit for the faith that we assign to his grace. And God will not allow it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through, what? Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now, what's he talking about? Which part of that verse is the gift? Is it the grace or is it the faith? Well, the reality is the grace. We all know the grace comes from him. We can't give ourselves grace and be saved. It has to be given to us. So we know that's not what he's talking about. The gift is faith. Now hear this. You couldn't even believe in God if God did not accept you. By grace. Even our faith is something that we bow our knee to and say, God, all praise to you. It's not as if we sit there and look at grace and then we have a component of faith. Well, do I want it? Want to give it to that or not? He's saying that God's spirit, literally, you cannot assign your faith to him until God's spirit literally takes the blinders off of your eyes and minds, helps us to see the greatness of Christ, gives us the gift of faith, and he says, now, attach it to that. Attach it to his grace. You see, Providence, listen to me. Grace is the only security you can rest upon because it is the only security you can't lose because you did nothing to get it and so not only does trusting Jesus Christ prepare us and make us fit for eternity But he wants us that while we're still walking this earth under the canopy of fallenness to live with spiritual certainty. And that certainty would not be based on a good day we're having or a bad day. A good quiet time day or a bad quiet time day. That it would be resting upon the grace of God that was extended to us because he loves us. Is that good news? So good. The third thing is this, is trusting Christ allows us to see the impossible become possible. When we trust in Jesus Christ, it allows us to see impossible things become possible. You see, this is the one thing that, that, that being a Christian, there's such an enormous advantage, and that is this, is that we literally, it's not just about rules and then our effort. There's a law that points us, but then there's grace that moves us. You see, one of the greatest things about being a Christian is that we actually get to tap into a power source that's not our own. And God can do things that you and I can't do. And this next passage here from verses 18 through the end of the chapter proves just that. You see, Abraham needed a son, right? I mean, if he is going to have literally, as God says back in Genesis 15, look him into the stars. All right, you count them. Well, I can't. All right, I know you can't count them. So shall your offspring be. 
meaning that your offspring will literally outnumber the stars. And Abram is his name at first, right? Abram. He gets Ham at the end here, here, here in a minute. But for 75 years, his name was Abram. Actually, that's not true. He was, he, was Ab- he, he was Abram for 99. But at 75 years old is when God comes to him and he says, Look, I'm going I'm to give you a descendant through your wife, Sarah. And you see, God's promise would not have been fulfilled without Isaac. Literally, the Bible and we need Isaac. We need Isaac to be born. And once he came to him, as the next 24 years unfolded, until he was 99 years old, Isaac did not exist. And humanly could not exist. The passage says that Abraham was 99 years old. Then he throws in, I don't know why, but the Bible throws in, he was as good as dead. And then he speaks of Sarah. And he says, and he... She's 90, and she's been barren her entire life. She's never been able to conceive. It really is fascinating, even the names that, 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 uh, that, that are um, there, that you have Abraham, and his name translated means exalted father, father of many. I mean, how embarrassing would that be? For 75, 99 years of your life, hey, how are you? What's your name? I'm, I'm Abraham. Wow, how many kids you got? None. But I'm believing. But I'm believing. Well, when he's 99 years old, he takes him back out and he says, All right, this is what we're going to do. A child is coming. I'm going to change your name. You're going to become Abraham. You know what Abraham means? It doesn't mean father of many, it means father of nations. So you think father of many is embarrassing without kids. What do you think father of nations felt like? And Abraham believed. It says that he, he believed. See, humanly, they couldn't do it. He's 99, she's 90, barren all her life. Human works and resources had been tried. There was a concubine named Hagar and a son named Ishmael. But God said, no, my promise will be fulfilled not by my cooperation with your human resources, but by my sovereign grace to do the impossible. You're going to have a baby. You are going to have a baby. (laughs) And here in the vice of hopeless circumstances stood a God who makes promises and a man who believed them. It says that he, in hope, he believed against hope. He didn't weaken in his faith. No distrust made him waver on the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, it is in God's character to make promises, and it's in God's power to fulfill them. And so you've got to ask this question. What promise has God made in the scriptures that you have no reason to doubt him or his power or his sovereignty at all, and yet you find it very difficult these days for you to believe? You see, there is no evidence in God or in Scripture except our own limited vision of the circumstances in our life that should keep us from believing this God. He's faithful. And God's promises were not only for them, they're for us. 2 Peter 1.4 says, God has granted to us His precious and very great 
promises. Now, this is really important because promises only matter if they're for us. Let me put it this way. Let's just say it's been raining for a week and there's two boys and they live in two houses right next to each other. And every morning they wake up and they look out the window and they go, oh man, it's still raining. So for a week they have no hope of going out. But then all of a sudden the sun comes up. It's a beautiful day. There's no rain. They both open up the curtain and one has hope and one is actually more hopeless. And the reason is because the one is A child that is well, and the other is a child that is sick. You see, if the promise is not for us, then it actually lies out beyond us, and it causes more discouragement than if he never even knew that the promise existed. For the child that's sick, they've been waiting all along, but he opens it up and he knows, it doesn't matter what the day is like, I can't go out anyway. And a lot of us, we read the scriptures and we say, you know, that's probably not for me anyway. And so the Bible makes it a point to say God has granted his precious and great promises for us. For us. So let me ask you this question. In your life, and whatever is big in your life, what would have to happen for you to conclude that God was unfaithful? That's a very important thing to ask and to answer. What would have to happen for you to conclude that God was unfaithful? You see, because even Abraham died before seeing the entire promise fulfilled in his own life. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 says this. These all died. And who who he's talking about there is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all died not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, Abraham died before seeing a nation, before seeing land, before seeing the Messiah. But his eyes saw Isaac. And he concluded that if his eyes could see Isaac, that sure enough, God would be faithful to all of his promises. You see, the supernatural birth of Isaac is a picture of how God creates children of promise, of you and me. Galatians chapter 4 verse 28 says it this way. You brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. When you look at your history, you should not be saved. You should not be forgiven, either should I. We should not be considered righteous. We should not be given spiritual life. We should not be forgiven. We should not be made heirs of heaven. But just like Isaac, for those that trust in Christ, we will. We will. We are descendants of Abraham by faith. If indeed our faith is in the righteousness and accomplishment of Jesus Christ that will be poured out to us. So have you trusted Christ? And are you trusting Christ today? If you will, benefits abound. They really do. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness that you pour out to us in Jesus. God, it's, it's just remarkable that when I look at my own personal life, that you would bestow such kindness upon me. And I think about how you've done that to all of us in this room and so many more. And we just 
or we're amazed. We're thankful. Thank you for what you make available as we trust in you. And I pray, God, that you would comfort those who are waiting upon a promise to be fulfilled and are doubting your character or your timing, your place or your pace. And I pray that you would sustain their faith. Help us to hope in you. We love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.